the Gospel of John. It has been our great joy for a couple of years now to be working our way through this. And, and now, although we are halfway through the literature, halfway through the record, we are much further through the chronology. There's only about two and a half months left prior to the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I want to ask you to turn there with me to John chapter 10, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 21, which will bring us to our text this morning. So John 10, 1 through 21, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon, Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This morning, so that we will trust, obey, and worship him, we'll see that hypocrites did not believe Jesus because they are not his sheep, but he gives eternal life to his sheep and keeps them forever. Chapter 10 begins about two and a half years into Jesus' earthly ministry, We pick up this morning in verse 22, two and a half months later, and we are at this point three months away from his death and resurrection. The end is near. And so our hope this morning as we look at this text is that we would see it for what it is and that the Lord would use it to move on our hearts, to trust him, to obey him, and to worship him. That's really the call upon our lives. Anything that we would do as a spiritual endeavor, in particular when we are attempting to be faithful to the Word of God, the end result ought to be a heightened attitude of the Savior, that we would find Him to be good, worthy. Uh, Rick mentioned to you the theme of this upcoming night of worship. He is worthy part of our problem, a big part of our problem, is that we forget his worth. And so we find worth in other things, things that bear worth, but not nearly the worth that he does. Think of it, the things that 
imprison your mind at times, the things that overtake you, the things that ultimately cause you to spend so much time either worrying or engaging in fleeting joy are things that are by no means anywhere near worth what he is, but because they serve as adequate distractions, we find ourselves forgetting just exactly how worthy he really is. Our hope this morning as we look at this text is that we would be moved, motivated, compelled emotionally but doctrinally first to worship him. And I think that will happen as you and I uh, in the Lord's kindness have been given ears to hear and eyes to see when we endeavor to receive the word of God. That is the result. That is the result. There are times where you leave here because we've spent time in the depth of God's word and you are grateful for having been reminded by God the Spirit in His Word of His greatness. And you're strengthened and you're encouraged and you think, man, I'm glad I didn't sleep in today because I felt like it. Things were so overwhelming, I thought I just need a break. Isn't it interesting that the the one entity in life that is by God's design in his perfect blueprint, the ultimate source other than him of encouragement, the church. That's the one thing that immediately above all else takes a back seat. When that begins to change, when you begin to find Jesus so worthy that you long to be with his sheep, especially when you don't feel like it, especially when you think, I just can't swing it, I just can't do it, life is too overwhelming. That's when spiritual maturity starts to take place. That's when it starts to happen. I'm not saying that's when it has happened. I'm saying that's the basic fundamental principle of the believer who endeavors to grow in his likeness to the Savior. He wants to be around people who are like the Savior. And the less he is like the Savior, the less he wants to be around them. And the more he sort of forces himself into that obedience, the more the Lord begins to mold his heart into that. And that's what we want this morning. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you desire? that as we go deep into God's word, you would see what the motivating doctrinal realities are that lead to that? You know, why is it that you look around and you see believers who just seem to really have, have some traction spiritually? I can remember thinking this for years. How is it that that guy stays in there? How is it that he's in the game? He's on the rails. He gets knocked over. He gets knocked off from time to time. In fact, it seems like the the larger the trial, the more tenacious he or she is. Why is that? It's because he's drunk with sound doctrine. That's why. And he surrounds himself with people in good books and in good churches who love the Lord in that way, and they have an influence on him. That's called discipleship. The, the guy who says, I don't need discipleship, you know, that's clearly the person who most needs discipleship. Discipleship is certainly the result of having a deep and high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into our main points in your notes there, let's look at the setup in verses 22 to 23. John tells us, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, about 200 years prior to this moment in our text, in 167 BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes polluted the Jewish temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar and setting up a false pagan god to replace the god of Judaism. So at that point, anyone caught with any part of the Jewish scriptures, what we now refer to as the Old Testament, would be subject to execution. He ruled the Jewish people with utter and brutal oppression. That was in the Jewish winter month of Kislev, overlapping with our December, 
that took place on the 25th day of Kislev, 167 B.C. Three years later, on the same day, Kislev 25, 164 B.C., the Jews rose up and revolted under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. They overthrew their Roman oppressors, and they restored the temple. Maccabeus was appropriately known as Judas the Hammer. You could say he brought the hammer, and the Romans didn't know how to handle it. The Feast of Dedication that we see in our text here, what's going on here is not one of the Old Testament feasts of the Hebrew people, but a celebration of the Jews' liberation from Epiphanes and of the cleansing of the temple. This was an eight-day celebration of lights, uh, similar to the celebration of booths, which was a celebration of lights. But unlike the Feast of Tabernacles or the celebration of booths, which required celebration in a temporary shelter, the Feast of Dedication could be celebrated at home. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, in his Jewish Antiquities said about this event, Now Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days and omitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but he feasted them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices, and he honored God and delighted them by hymns and psalms. Nay, they were so very glad at the revival of their customs when after a long time of intermission they unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship that they made it a law for their posterity that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it Lights. I suppose the reason was because the liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us, and that thence was the name given to that festival. Judas, he's referring to Judas the hammer here, also rebuilt the walls round about the city and reared towers of great height against the incursions of enemies and set guards therein. He also fortified the city Bethzura that it might serve as a citadel against any distresses that might come from our enemies, end quote. Today, this is known as Hanukkah. That's the Jewish event that, to some degree, overlaps our Christmas celebration. Verse 22 goes on to say, It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It was winter which can be quite cold in Jerusalem. This is likely why Jesus was walking in the eastern side of the temple, Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch, rather than in the open court. And while you don't see a recurring theme of hot and cold in the Gospel of John and the way we repeatedly see the light-slash-dark contrast or the light-slash-darkness contrast, while it's winter in Jerusalem, the season is certainly a picture of the wintry, cold, political, and religious temperature in Israel. They were in a hopeless state, similar to that time prior to the military victory of Judas the Hammer. And it was true when Jesus walked in the portico of Solomon. It was true during this time that the people of Israel, the people of Judaism, longed for a hero. They were in winter, as it were, and they longed for a military hero to usher in the victory of springtime. That was what was on their hearts. And so the true Messiah, the Christ, who came as a lamb and as a shepherd of sheep, did not meet their erroneous and unrealistic expectations the irony, that while they celebrate an earthly warrior, they reject the king, the Messiah, who had been prophesied for centuries and for whom they had waited. The trouble is they were looking for a hero in the image of Judas Maccabeus. They were looking for a hammer. And instead, a shepherd arrives. Rather than the true Messiah, a shepherd, the one true shepherd comes. And as you know, they, his people, reject him. But what is the deeper problem? What is the real problem that underlies 
this dismissal of the one true shepherd in hopes of finding a political and military hero. Well, point number one, hypocrites disbelieve Jesus because they are not his sheep. Hypocrites. Actors. Verse 24 says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is the height of hypocrisy. Have you ever said to someone, how many times do I have to tell you? And if you're a parent, your answer is, yes, I've said that. Jesus didn't go into that frustrated rage that so often parents might do. But he dealt with them boldly, and he spoke to them plainly. This is hypocrisy on their part because they not only display a deafness to his voice, but they blame their ignorance on him. Somehow, they want it to be his fault even though they have belligerently and deliberately ignored the signs. He says, I told you and you do not believe. Go back to verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. No, he didn't use these exact words. He hadn't explained this to them. He hadn't told them this in the exact words that he would use now. But that is so often the frustrating reality of the person who is disinterested in truth. If you tell him something and you tell him multiple times, and you tell him clearly and plainly, he will find some way to point out precisely what you didn't say, rather than to understand the spirit of what you did say. Well, I didn't understand that you meant that. Well, I told you, and I was clear, and I repeated it, and this was certainly the case. They, of course, wanted to hold Jesus to the letter rather than to the Spirit. Verse 25b is the answer to the question, what exactly did he tell them? The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's his works. It's his signs. His signs were an expression of the reality that he is one with the Father, that he comes from the Father. He is the bread of heaven. He comes down from heaven. He even said so boldly to them, and yet unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So you have to wonder what mix was going on in their minds, some portion of disbelief and some portion of simple rejection of what was obviously true when The signs had so repeatedly pointed to his deity and his sovereignty. Now you know from John 20, we've said it many, many times, John 20, verses 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the signs. It's the miracles. It's the works. It's the things that he and he alone could accomplish that pointed to the reality that he was the God Messiah. He was the Christ. He and he alone could and did accomplish salvation for his sheep. And so as they saw the signs, they rejected the signs. And what fueled that all the more was the reality that they wanted a superhero. They wanted a military hero. They didn't really want a Messiah. What were those signs? Well, we've seen a number of them up to this point in our text. He turned water into wine, showing his mastery over creation, over water, and over grapes. He healed a nobleman's son in chapter 4, showing his mastery over geography. He was here. The, the uh, infirmed one was a significant distance away. He assured the man, go to your 
child. He's healed. He healed him in the moment. Those who were there with the child testified to the timing with which Jesus healed him. He healed a paralyzed man in chapter 5, showing his mastery, his sovereignty over the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can't break the Sabbath. He broke the man-made Sabbath, but he fulfilled the law, displaying the purpose of the Sabbath, which those who had adhered to the Mishnah and the Talmud, the 600-plus additional rules added to the Old Testament law, had rejected. They made their own Sabbath. He shows that he is the sustainer of life in chapter 6 by feeding 5,000 people with some crackers and fish. He walks on water in chapter 6, displaying his mastery over nature. He heals a man born blind, showing himself to be the light of the world in chapter 9. And what's their response? It's defiance. It's belligerence. It's a disinterest in truth. Turn back to chapter 5, verse 16 for a moment. Chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You would think that they would respond to the miraculous reality that he had healed a man, unhealable. But instead, they want to focus on the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. They want to strain the gnat and swallow the camel. Look at verse 36 in chapter 5. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Not only a picture of him being a messenger of the Father, but a picture of the reality that he himself is God. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. Who's in heaven? God. God comes from heaven. Nobody else comes from heaven. And in that he came from heaven as the bread of life, he came down not only in representation of his Father, but he comes in ontological oneness with the Father. They are the same nature. Two persons. Same essence. And so they rejected him. And so they rejected his works. They didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't want to believe that he was God. So they rejected him, and they rejected his works. Turn to chapter 9. You'll remember this, verse 16, chapter 9. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. You know, he uh, sort of defaulted to the most obvious of thoughts, and that would be that if he's able to do these things, at least he must be, at the very least, a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. The community knew, the people knew, and so the Pharisees, the hypocrites, chose to dismiss the reality of the work that had been done. You know why this was done. The text is clear. I didn't have to interpret that for you or anybody. This was done. Why? That the works of God might be on display. Those are the words of John the Baptist. Those are the words of Jesus. That's exactly why the setup was what it was, that the works would be on display, that God's glory would be manifest Turn with me for a second to Romans 3. We don't don't look at this often enough, but I think this is an appropriate doctrinal point. Romans 3, uh, verse 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is a a little bit of a heavy heavy doctrinal issue, but I think it'll help lay a basis for what we've seen go on here and what the 
the uh, hypocrites, the Jews, rejected. Verse 1, Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? He's already pointed out circumcision uh, or non-circumcision. It doesn't matter. Much in every way, verse 2. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, right? Because God calls people to trust him. God calls people to obey him. He lays down everything necessary for people to do that, and they still reject him. So the question uh, Paul is asking as we wouldn't call it the devil's advocate, but it's kind of that idea when you use the phrase devil's advocate. That's, that's what you mean by that idea. Paul is speaking in human terms. He's asking the question that would logically and reasonably be asked by the unregenerate person. In every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted by the oracles of God, right? They had the word of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, this is where he gets really doctrinally practical, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Those who, two things, slanderously and falsely accuse Paul and faithful messengers of God's word of uh, displaying unrighteous conduct and really misrepresenting the Lord, uh, they themselves are yet condemned. They prove that they are yet condemned because they ask questions like this in an effort to trip up the messenger. And Paul is not going to be tripped up. He's asking the question before it gets asked so that those who would receive and drink deeply from the Word of God would be ready. That in John 9, this man would be blind from birth by God's design is part of that. It was a time during which blindness was not that unusual. And often from some sort of other disease, the blindness would occur. And so you could say, well, that's the result of the fall. Exactly. Is God not sovereign over the fall, though? God's sovereign over all things. And if you define sovereignty as that which is expressive of God's good nature in good things, meaning Every time something good happens, you say, praise God, he's sovereign. You don't understand sovereignty. That's his kindness. His sovereignty is his constant, uninterrupted rule of all things. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And all of his attributes are always exercised uninterruptedly. John 12, 35 says... So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. You say, who's, who's at fault? Go back to Romans 3. Man is at fault, and yet God is sovereign. So when we point to God's sovereignty, we don't say things like, well, God must be unrighteous, right? Paul says, no. People who live with that mindset are not enjoying the benefits of the statement in Romans 8.1 that therefore there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 3, he says, they're yet condemned. 
the people who stick their thumb in the eye of God's sovereignty. Now, it's one thing to ask questions, and everyone should, and at some point, everyone does. You need to sincerely and genuinely say, Lord, I don't understand this. This is heavy doctrine. If you don't do that, you'll end, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. If you just acquiesce to this concept of God's sovereignty, this is what will happen. You don't really believe it, but because people around you do, you don't want to be embarrassed. Well, I hear Todd say it. I, you know, my family group shepherd, and, and for crying out loud, my mom, you know, and uh, I don't know. I just don't see it. And here's what will happen. One day, you'll have a conversation with somebody, or you'll read something, or you'll watch a movie, and you'll start to question with sincerity, genuineness. And you'll say, you know, I, I never really, really believed that. And what does that display? It displays the unregenerate condition. I'm not, now listen, I'm not saying that everybody who does not believe in the doctrine of election or the five solas or the five points is not regenerate. I'm not saying that. I've never said that. I've never said anything like that. But what I am saying is that the person who gives this full-on, you know, cage Calvinist attitude about the doctrines of grace, and then one day begins to question them and says something like, I used to believe all that. He never really understood it. Does that make sense? He never really got to the place where he saw it in Scripture, and God gave him eyes to see it and gave him ears to hear it. And gave him a heart to receive it. So don't be that person. I suspect that that kind of attitude could be inadvertently brewed in our church. Because we have such a high view of God, a high view of his word. Nobody wants to step into an environment like that and say, man, I feel like I don't know anything. Let me just tell you, that's not a bad place to start. That happened to me when I went to seminary. I mean, I had far more unlearning to do than I had any idea. I had a lot of unlearning to do. I had to go through spiritual detox, Arminian detox. I had so much bad thinking that I was reading Cornelius Van Til. And I remember thinking, as he's saying things like, you know, the person who believes this, you know, fill in the blank, uh, believes that somehow man can frustrate God's plan. And I remember as a first-year seminary student reading that and thinking, yeah, what's wrong with that? Now, many of you are going, yeah, you were, you were a mess back then. But so were you at some point. And the worst thing we could do is tell people they're a mess if they don't yet get that. What we ought to be doing is looking to worship Jesus, that we would exalt him and that the Lord would use us to become conformed to his image so that people would find the hope of Christ in how we minister to them. Look at what he says further in John 12, 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, right? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe this is all about God's sovereignty here. This is all about God maintaining the blindness of the self-inflicted blind and in his timing, granting sight, granting light for sight. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Whoa, wait a minute. Man's responsibility, what happened? Seems like a total shift of gears. It's not. Because in God's economy, both are always, in a synchronized way, true. You and I look at it from a human perspective when we say, man, this is, this is hard. Well, that's exactly what the disciples said. But they didn't walk away. And so you and I, we don't, we don't walk away when we see these hard truths, right? The hypocrites walked away. They disbelieved Jesus because they are not his sheep. The sheep hang in there and they follow and they listen and they strive to understand. Well, go to John 6 for just a little bit more of a doctrinal basis. John 6, 37. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, everybody loves that verse. Everybody on the theological spectrum loves this. I mean, we love this, right? We love all the Bible. We love the whole counsel of God. There are those who love that verse, but do not like the rest of this passage. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And now they're back to liking what the passage says. What they don't like is the idea that those who will come to him are only those that the Father gives to him. The Father gives his sheep to him. So, what's the deal? Why is it that the signs being replete, prolific, many, that Jesus is doing these signs, so many signs that all the books in the world couldn't contain them all? Mark 4.11, parable of the soils. This is where Jesus explains the purpose of parables. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. So they see, but they don't understand. They see the words, they don't understand the words. They hear words, they don't understand the words. They know something's being said, they know something's being done, they don't, they don't get it. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, to the disciple, he's saying, you need to grow up, Right? You and I read parables, we, we, we read doctrinal truth, we read things that in some cases are harder truths than others, and we ought to hear the voice of our Savior saying, if you don't understand this, how will you understand everything else? The point is not to say that you don't understand anything. The point is to say that you need to work to understand it under the dominion and the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. But for the person who reads it and just totally rejects it, he walks away. You remember that, right? In John 6, what did the false disciples do? They didn't say, wow, this is hard. Lord, help us. They bolted. They walked away. They said, it's nonsense. They called him insane. And for some of you, maybe many of you, maybe most of you, as the Lord really began to do a work on your heart with solid, legitimate, sound, reformed teaching derived directly from an exegetical work from the Bible, from the truth and the purity of God's word, you begin to share this with somebody. And they looked at you like you had three heads, just like you looked at your husband, some of you gals at some point, or, or your wives at some point. And there's a dividing line. There's a dividing line. There will be those who will say, wow, how did I miss that? Can you help me with this? And there will be others who will say, it can't mean that. And they walk away. I don't think we can say that that necessarily means they are not sheep. But it certainly means that they are not proving themselves to be sheep when there is such a vehement hatred for truth that is replete throughout the Word of God. Verse 26 in our text, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now this is as penetrating, I think, as any verse in the Bible. It's as revealing as any. You know, you got a friend in school that you love, you would hope would come to know Christ, and you, you, know, you weep and you pray, and 
You, you know, you go to your parents, or you know, for those of you who are older, and you go to your kids. Maybe you go to a sister, maybe your spouse, maybe a coworker, or somebody here in the church, and you say, "I don't, I don't understand why he won't believe." Well, don't immediately default to this idea that they don't believe because they're not sheep. But know for sure that there are those who will never believe because they are not sheep. Don't be dismissive of the person who rejects truth by saying, well, obviously he's not one of God's elect. You don't know that. What you know is that in the moment he's rejecting truth. So as that person continues to give you opportunity, you ought to minister to that person with the truth. The person who ultimately proves not to be a sheep is a person who proves unwilling, disinterested, and unable to understand the pictures that Jesus paints throughout the Word of God. This is why we teach using illustrations. Maybe one of the clearest illustrations, and we just spent time around our devotional table at home this last week over this, Maybe one of the clearest illustrations is that where Jesus calls a small child to himself. And he doesn't say, you must have the faith that this child has. He uses the word such. Those such as these. Meaning that as children naturally display an uninterrupted trust in their sometimes unworthy parents, that illustrates the kind of uninterrupted trust you and I must have in our Savior. He's not saying that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to those such as these. And it's a call for those looking on in that illustration to trust him in that way. I don't have time to do the whole thing, but I I wanted to at least allude to Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is where Jesus calls those uh, to recognize that the true shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one. He's not neglecting the 99. The point is that the 99 are well-fed, they're well-cared for. If you applied that illustration or that parable to our church, we would say, you know, when one shepherd or two or three shepherds go to minister to a wandering or a hurt sheep, it's not like the 99 or so that are left behind are being neglected because there are other shepherds. But the true shepherd cares well for the sheep, and when one wanders, he, along perhaps with another shepherd, would go to minister to that wandering sheep, that stray sheep. Verse 14 of Matthew 18 then, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's talking about sheep, those who have been sheep since eternity past. It's not his will that any one of them would perish. He then goes on from verse 15 on to explain the need to pursue the restoration of sheep and the treating of non-sheep as the unbelievers that they are. He says, treat them as tax gatherers. He doesn't say be unkind or hate them. You still love the unbeliever. But the point is that sheep prove themselves to be sheep because they follow the shepherd. Well, point two Point two, Jesus knows his sheep, gives them eternal life, and keeps them forever. Verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, when somebody asks about eternal security, and some of you have enough of a checkerboard ecclesiological background that you recall conversations kind of between the Pentecostal camp and the Baptist camp. And the primary argument is once saved, always saved, or not. It's not really the primary issue in Scripture. The P in TULIP stands for perseverance. The real issue in Scripture is perseverance. Those who are elect from eternity past and God saves by the atoning work of Christ on the cross and the hope of the resurrection show that reality in their perseverance. They keep on keeping on as a result of being motivated by the cross and the resurrection as determined in eternity past. So that's really the fundamental issue. But in this text, the issue is eternal security. It's eternal security. I give them 
eternal life, he says. They will never die. Never. There's not one iota of a hint, of a shadow, of a possibility that this might change. When God saves someone, he saves them for eternity, and he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. I was teaching from this passage many years ago, and a person said to me, no, Todd, no one will snatch them out of my hand, but they can take themselves out of God's hand. That really is a complete misunderstanding of what it means for someone to be in God's hand. God keeps his sheep. He keeps them forever. That's why we titled the message today, Jesus Keeps His Sheep Forever. He keeps them forever. John 10, verse 11. You remember this. You remember this. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. For whom? For his sheep. He dies for his sheep. He saves his sheep. He saves them in the moment that he gives up his life. A big part of the argument regarding this once saved, always saved, or not is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. We had a wonderful event here Friday night focusing on the biological prenatal development of the human person beginning with conception. And um, much of our focus was that while man is created in the image of God, that image is marred because of the fall. And so the work of those who would be involved in preventing babies from being murdered in the womb ought to lead to that image of Christ being restored in that soul. It ought not to be simply about saving human physical beings, but seeing them come to understand and know and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be conformed to the image of Christ, that the marred image would be increasingly less marred, that we would decrease and he would increase. When Jesus begins that work, when he saves someone, really what's happened is he has initiated sanctification. When you think of salvation and sanctification, don't think of them as two unrelated issues. It's not like you've got salvation and then sanctification. Yeah, that's the chronology. But the reality is that salvation is simply a part of sanctification. God sets apart his sheep, and he conforms them to the image of his son as they go through life. That's what it is to be a Christian. You love righteousness. You love the brethren. You love the word. You know, if somebody's wondering, am I saved or not? Am I, you know, once saved, always saved? Maybe, maybe I was never saved. Well, maybe not. I mean, certainly not if there is no interest in righteousness. You know, if your love for the brethren has got to be worked up, you know, being around Christians is kind of painful for you. I think I've shared this with you before. My, my good friend, Vince Bradshaw, he's a pastor in Sacramento, and I were talking one time when we were in seminary, and I, I said to him about my, my good friend, Clayton. I said, you know, Vince, the more time I spend with Clayton, the more I like him. And Vince said something to me that really, really rocked my world. It really did. He said, yeah, but isn't that true about all Christians? The more time you spend with them, the more you like them. I had to say no with an exclamation point. You want to know why? I was a false convert. That's why. You know, the person who is a Christian, a person who's a sheep, once he's regenerate, he wants to be around sheep who are following the shepherd. It's not a fight. You know, he's not finding ways to get out of being with the body. He's looking for more ways to be around the body. He'd much rather be around Christians than non-Christians, although because he loves Christ, he wants to be around non-Christians so that they too would become lovers of the Savior, followers of the Savior. So we've said that hypocrites disbelieve Jesus because they're not his sheep. We've said that Jesus knows his sheep, gives them eternal life, and keeps them forever. Point three, Jesus' sheep hear and follow him. They hear his voice and they follow him. Unless you're wondering, no, we're not talking about an audible voice. 
That doesn't happen. You say, oh, it happened to me. Well, that was something else. Trust me. That was not the God of the Bible. You might have heard a voice. It might have been real. And everybody, everybody who has a low view of God's word wants some euphoric experience to cling to. Far better to cling to the Savior whose voice is simply his word. Now think of it. Those of you who had a loved one that you revered, maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, an uncle, friend, who's no longer living, do you long to hear that person's voice? I mean, is that what really enraptures you? Maybe a day or two after the death, maybe even a year later. But long term, what you really hold on to is that person's words, their philosophy, their attitudes, those things that were valuable that you learned from. You know, people will say things like, I always remember my dad saying, fill in something good and valuable and helpful. Same with the Lord. You don't long to hear some audible voice, do you? No, you long to know and understand the word of the shepherd who leads you because you long to follow him. And what does it look like to follow him? It is to legitimately drink deeply from his word. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago a friend of mine who loved theology, but man, he did not like the word of God. And that's why he embraced N.T. Wright. That's what happens. You embrace the ideas that surround the Bible. And pretty soon you find yourself following a false teacher who says things that are very persuasive rather than drinking deeply from the purity of the word itself. You know, Peter and James both talk about this. Drinking from the word as a baby drinks voraciously to be nourished, to be filled, to be satisfied. To the point that that baby grows and eventually has to have meat. You know, Hebrews 5, where the writer of Hebrews really chastises those who have become dull of hearing. Is that you? He says they've become dull of hearing. He says, you should be teachers by now. And I guarantee you that's true of some of you in this room. You should be teachers by now, but you're dull of hearing. Hearing, And he goes on to talk about the reality that some idol has prevented you from drinking down the Word of God. You can't handle the meat of the Word of God. That's the problem with a lot of Christians, isn't it? When it comes to the deeper doctrines of the Bible, you know, they hear it and they go, I don't know, that's a little heavy for me. Let's go to Coco's. <laughs> Get a shake. That was, whoa, wow. You know, and they live, you know, a decade goes by. And another decade, and pretty soon, every time the name of Martin Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or, you know, some solid theologian, R.C. Sproul, every time that name comes up, they're like, yeah, I don't get that guy. I had a guy tell me one time, Todd, this stuff you're trying to get me to do, he says, I, I don't know, I'm just not interested, you know, because here's what's happening. I'm one of those people who just understands things right away. This is what he told me. I'm one of those people, I just, I see something, I understand it. If I don't, I just move on. Let me get this straight. You're saying that you're a person who really understands things easily and quickly, but when you don't, you just move on. How often do you just move on? Every time. Oh, that's the problem. You know, you and I must be stretched in our following of the shepherd because he goes places that sheep can't handle. You need his help to understand them. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. You remember this from Luke 9, 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, they didn't get this, right? They didn't know that he was applying this idea to the cross. Oh, deny myself. Take up the cross? Well, that's an awful thing. Why would he say a weird thing like that? They still didn't understand it because they couldn't know because they weren't mature enough yet. Listen to this. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So to deny self, to take up the cross and follow him means to be willing to stay in there, to persevere in his word. When you get to the hard truths, you don't say things like, well, it couldn't possibly mean that. You know, in my mind, that's a contradiction to this over here. The truth is, you're the problem, as am I. When we read things, we don't understand, especially when we attribute it to contradiction. But his sheep hear, understand, and respond trustingly, obediently, and worshipfully. That's how sheep respond to his voice. I'm going to read to you from Philip Keller. The shepherd looks at Psalm 23. He says, The good shepherd comes gently and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. The difficult point is that most of us don't want to come. We don't want to follow. We don't want to be led in the paths of righteousness. Somehow it goes against our grain. We actually prefer to turn to our own way, even though it may take us straight into trouble. The stubborn, self-willed, proud, self-sufficient sheep that persists in pursuing its old paths and grazing on its old polluted ground will end up a bag of bones on ruined land. The world we live in is full of such folk. Broken homes, broken hearts, Derelict lives and twisted personalities remind us everywhere of men and women who have gone their own way. We have a sick society struggling to survive on beleaguered land. The greed and selfishness of mankind leaves behind a legacy of ruin and remorse. Amid all this chaos and confusion, Christ the Good Shepherd comes and says, If any man will follow me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. But most of us, even as Christians, simply don't want to do this. We don't want to deny ourselves, give up our right to make our own decisions. We don't want to follow. We don't want to be led. Of course, most of us, if confronted with this charge, would deny it. We would assert vehemently that we are led of the Lord we would insist that we would follow wherever he leads. We sing songs to this effect and give mental assent to the idea. But as far as actually being led in paths of righteousness is concerned, precious few of us follow that path. Actually, this is the pivot point on which a Christian either goes on with God or at which point he goes back from following on. There are many willful, wayward, indifferent, self-interested Christians who cannot really be classified as followers of Christ. There are relatively few diligent disciples who forsake all to follow the Master. Jesus never made light of the cost involved in following him. In fact, he made it painfully clear that it was a rugged life of rigid self-denial. It entailed a whole new set of attitudes. Those attitudes are displayed throughout the Scripture, Galatians 5, Philippians 2, Ephesians. The attitude is one that he is the shepherd. I follow him. I don't try to make up my own plan or my own design for what it looks like to follow him. I follow him. I'm not looking for a voice. God, tell me what to do. I'm trusting his blueprint, his design for his flock, the church, with human shepherds, with men who lead sheep faithfully. That's God's design. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. It's a clear call, is it not? That we would follow him, that we would adhere to what he says, that we would subject ourselves to his design, his design, that we might worship him, that we might follow him, that we might obey him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the kindness of a shepherd who would die for his sheep. We don't follow a military ruler who on a whim might change his attitude about what he wants to do with his life. We don't follow a ruler who wants by military or political force to change the landscape of things. God, we thank you that we live in a country where freedoms abound, but we recognize that one day that'll be gone with the wind. We ask that you might help us even now to find our way to keep focused on the person of Jesus, who is our good shepherd, that we would follow him. And as we do, we would do so trustingly, obediently, and worshipfully. We ask that you would help us, even now in this moment as we sing to him, to do those very things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.